1 Timothy chapter 3. Six foundational truths of church leadership. Six foundational truths of church leadership. Let's pray, and then we'll look at this portion of Scripture. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so thankful to be able to come and to sing praises to you. And Lord, even the song that was just ministered to us, Lord, we need to walk by faith, Lord, not by sight. Lord, I pray that that would be the way that each of us live out our daily lives as we look to you. Lord, I pray today that you might stir our hearts, you might encourage our hearts, I pray specifically today for men who sit in this auditorium, Lord, who aspire to the position that we're going to be talking about today. Lord, I pray that you would challenge their hearts, Lord, and realize that certainly if you have set this order of leadership in the Word of God, that means you have placed men within the walls of Mount Calvary Church to be elders. God, I pray that uh, the men would really pray about this, Father, and what you would desire them to do in this area. So God, speak to our hearts this morning through the precious word of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Six foundations of church leadership. First of all, last week we talked about Jesus is the head of the church. Of the nine pastors who have been here that you've called to be leaders, Jesus has always been the head of Mount Calvary Church and will continue to be the head of this church. The second thing we said last week is that members are priests and ministers. And every one of us we talked about last week are priests. That's the position. We have the right to go to God ourselves. We don't have to go to a man to have our sin absolved or forgiven. We can go to Jesus Christ ourselves to do that. And then we talked about that we, each of us, are ministers. That might be the title that you've given me, but each of us are to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ministry of his work. Then we talked about the local church, or the local congregation, has authority. And uh, we looked at that authority last week in Matthew 18, in the area of church uh, discipline. But uh, Lord, also that means that the church has authority, Lord, to help carry out leadership. The fourth thing we said was the local congregation calls out leaders and then is willing to submit themselves to those leaders. Then we talked about those leaders are called elders. And we looked at the plurality of eldership last week. We looked at a lot of portions of Scripture that shows us um, that there were elders in all of the early churches that we find in God's Word. As we move through the New Testament, we found out that every local church seem to have established elders in that church. And then the last thing we looked at, that the position of the elders was to lead and to feed the congregation. And so this morning, we want to look at this uh, position of elder, and particularly the qualifications that God's Word calls for that person. And we find that here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But before we do that, let me just talk very briefly this morning about the history of the term elder. We find it used 180 times in the Old Testament. And uh, literally the meaning, first of all, has to do with age. Somebody who is older, an elder, someone who is older than you are. But two-thirds of the time, it's applied to community leadership. It was applied to community leadership. 
The first time we find it is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 7. It talks about the elders in Egypt. And again, in Numbers, when Moses is told to pick out 70 men from among the elders elders to be a help in enrolling. Again, when the Israelites settle in the promised land, we find elders in each city, and in, um, each city has its own council of elders to help it rule. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, elders uh, are pleading with Samuel that we need a, or pleading with Samuel the prophet that they needed a king. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, David needs permission from the elders um, to do some things there in that portion of Scripture. So we could go on and on, but we're not going to look at all of those times, but we find the word, first of all, in the Old Testament. When we move into the New Testament, it's found 173 times. So think about that for a minute. 180 times in the Old Testament, which is much longer, but 173 times in the New Testament. So it's used much more in the New Testament writings. And uh, of those 173 times, the words elder, bishop, overseer, and pastor are all interchangeable. Those words are all interchangeable. Um, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have elders with the chief priests and the scribes. They were the religious leaders. They were the lay leaders who would come along, the scribes and the Pharisees, to help them in making decisions. They were part of the Sanhedrin council. In Acts chapter 11, verse 30, the term is used for the first time as leadership in the early church. You see the apostles and the elders. Um, they're shared leadership. Formally, the word is used as church leadership here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and again in Titus chapter 1. And then we find the word elders used actually in the book of Revelation. It talks in the book of Revelation about the 12, uh, 12 different times, but it's talking about the 24 elders, uh, men sitting around the throne of God who are there for the purpose of ministering to God. So even in the end times, we find the word elder used. So this morning, we want to look at the qualifications. So let me read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the first seven verses. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice. Uh, lest he be puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must be of good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into a reproach and the snare of the devil. When we look at this, I want to go through today uh, rather quickly the different qualifications that we find in the Word of God. First of all, I want you to notice in verse 1 it says, this is a faithful saying, if a what? Man. If a man, the first qualification is the gender. It's a man. An elder is always a man. 
I'm sorry, we're not into ordaining women. We never will ordain women. Those who ordain women, that is not a biblical practice. It's elders who are called to be the leaders in the church here. That's what he's saying. It's a masculine term that's used here. And the adjective ties in later with verses 2 and 6 where it uses the adjective he. It keeps using that he, he, he is used several times. So the first qualification, it's a male. The second, you'll notice, it says if a man desires, a person who wants to be an elder, he's going to desire or aspire to that position. And that word aspire means to reach out for. It means to stretch out, to grab for. So that means that God has put with this, in this man a passionate compulsion to want to serve in this possession. There's an, a position. There's an outward pursuit because of an inward drive. Now let me say to you this morning, just because a man aspires to that position doesn't mean he should serve in that position. You can come and say, well, you know what? I really desire. I have this. Uh, I'm aspiring. I desire to be an elder. That's fine, but unless your life lines up with all of the other qualifications that we're about to look at, then you're not qualified to serve in that position. Let me just say, just because you meet the first two, that you're a male and you desire to be an elder, does not necessarily mean that you should be an elder. You have to meet all of the other qualifications that are mentioned here. And so let's look at what those other qualifications are. The very first one, he says, is above approach or reproach. He's not, it's, there's not able to find anything. And the best way that I can show you this, and actually what it literally means above reproach, is it means this. Say, well, what's that? It's a pot. But what's wrong with this pot? What's that? It's empty. Well, that's true. It would be good if there was some soup or something. Very good. There's no handles on it. Needs a lid too, okay? But let's say if this pot had some nice, full of vegetables with some nice meat and, you know, soup, and we could just smell it. Can't just smell that vegetable soup cooking. And so you decide, boy, I want to eat some vegetable soup, and you went to grab it. There's no what? There's no handle. There's nowhere to grab onto. And so when it says a man above reproach, what it's saying there, it's a pot without a handle. There's nothing you can grab onto. There's in a sense what? There's nothing bad you can say about him. That's what that verse is literally trying to get across to it. It's a man who's above reproach. When you look at that man, you say, wow, you know, when I, when I think of him, there's nothing really bad I can think of him. There's nothing I can grab onto. And that's what this portion of Scripture is saying. Above reproach there literally means it's a pot without a handle. You, you can't grab onto him because there's nothing bad to grab onto. When you think of that person, literally, in a sense, he's above reproach. And this, this word in the, in the present tense, it means in the present state of being. That means that's right now, in his present state of being, there's nothing that you can say there's wrong with him. The next one I want you to look at, it says the husband of one wife. 
Literally, that term there means a one-woman man. That's the literal translation of what that's saying there. It is a one-woman man. I don't believe this phrase here is defining his marital status, but his moral and sexual behavior. Listen to me this morning. You can be married and not be a one-woman man. So I really think what he's trying to get at is this is the person, this is the man who is married, and he has eyes for his wife only. He's not a man who is involved with Internet pornography. He's not a man who is looking for other women. He's not a man who is going out and having affairs. He is a one-woman man. He has a commitment to that one woman, and that's who he's committed to. Let me say it again. You can be married and not be a one-woman man. So a lot of times what we say, wow, listen, they, you know, they don't have any divorce. They're, they're perfect. They're, 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 they should serve in this position. But literally, listen, just because somebody's married doesn't mean they're a one-woman man. Literally, it's saying here that they have eyes for their wife only. A one-woman man. This qualification is that he loves and he desires and he thinks only of his wife. Doesn't mean that he's not tempted. The reality is every man in this room is tempted, but he doesn't continually fall to those temptations. He is really seeking to be one woman man. That's literally what that scripture is saying there. The next word, he says that he is... Um, he is temperate. The word temperate here means sober-minded. It's a balanced judgment. It means he's modest in every area of his life. He is emotionally and mentally stable. He makes wise decisions. Certainly, somebody who's going to be in the place of an elder, you want that person to be a person who makes wise decisions. He has stability of mind. He is sober-minded. The next word that is used there is the word sober-minded is of good behavior um, or prudence or self-control. Self-control, sober-minded, temperate, and then sober-minded. He has self-control. Um, prudence. He exercises good judgment. He keeps an objective perspective in the face of problems. Problems don't upset him, in other words. He doesn't get all worked up. The next one is he's respectable. means he's orderly or he's well-behaved. He is well-organized. You know, this word is the word cosmos in the Greek. The opposite for this is the word chaos. The word chaos, which means out of order. This word means he is a person who is very orderly. He does things in an orderly fashion fashion. He follows through on things is what it's saying there. I want you to look at the next word. It is the word hospitable. The word hospitable, this means a love for strangers. It's really, I think, getting across he is approachable. He's easy to talk with. He makes you feel comfortable. That's what that word hospitable means. He makes you feel comfortable. The next word is he is apt or able to teach. 
Now, we're going to be looking next week at the qualifications of a deacon, and you will see that this qualification here is not found under that of a deaconos or of a servant deacon. You don't find this qualification able to teach or apt to teach. It means he is a skilled teacher. He has the gift of teaching. It means he has an understanding of doctrine. He has an attitude of humility. Um, he's not arrogant in his attitude of understanding the truth. And his life reflects that of what he teaches. He's not just saying it, he's living out what he teaches. He's a diligent studier of the word. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman needeth not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 This person understands God's word and he is following it but he is apt to teach. Now, it was interesting this week, Pastor John came into my office and gave me a graph. And it, uh, it, on this graph, it said, this is the way that churches choose their preachers or their pastors. And it says 75% of the time, they look at this one qualification. Is he a good teacher? And they forget all about the rest. But did you know this one qualification, when you put it all with all the rest, it's only 7.1% of all of the qualifications? It's only 7.1% of all of the qualifications. A person might be a good teacher, but if they're not meeting all the other 92.9% .9 of these qualifications, then they're not qualified to be an elder. So it's more than just being apt to teach. It's all of the other qualifications. Look at the nut, next one. Not given to wine. He's not addicted to wine. He's not a drunkard. Um, most people in the Bible consumed wine. It was the stable liquid to drink. Um, you know, in biblical times, they didn't have all the purification systems for water. And so often people would drink water, and that water would make them sick. So what they would do is they would mix wine with the water. It would usually be 7% water and 1% wine, and that would help to purify the wine. And so here, um, if, you, if you have the King James, I believe it reads probably a little bit different. It, it, it says they can have no wine, no wine whatsoever. And so I think Timothy, when you go back, and we, can't, we don't have time to develop this whole thing this morning, but Timothy was really trying to uphold this qualification of no wine whatsoever. He said, well, listen, it seems like a deacon can have a little bit of wine, but an elder can have no wine. So Timothy said, I'm going to uphold that qualification. And so Timothy seemed to have some stomach problems. And... Uh, Whatever it was, I don't know, but it was some type of stomach problems. And Paul come, came to him and he says, Timothy, why don't you take a little wine for your stomach sake? So again, what was Timothy trying to do? He was, up try, he was really trying to uphold this no wine whatsoever. And maybe he was drinking water that wasn't good for him. And so Paul comes back and says, Timothy, why don't you go ahead and mix a little wine with the water and that will help that stomach problem that you're having. But Timothy was up trying to uphold this qualification of the elder to have no wine whatsoever. 
So what it's saying here, he's not addicted to wine. Um, he abstains totally. And Timothy was trying to hold that. The next one I want you to look at, it says he is not violent. He is not violent here. He's gentle. He's considerate. He's forbearing. He's gracious. He's one who easily pardons human failures. He remembers good, not evil. He does not hold grudges. Or he doesn't keep lifts. He accepts criticism. That's what that word is really trying to get across here when it says he is not violent. Considerate, forbearing, gracious. One who easily pardons human failures. Why? Because he realizes that he has been pardoned so graciously by God. The next word that is used there, not violent. Another word that could also be uncontentious or not quarrelsome. He is peaceful. He's reluctant to fight. It's not really talking so much about physical violence as much as a quarrelsome type person. He's always ready to fight. He's always ready to have to, he has to give you his opinion all the time. Or he has to tell you what he thinks of things all the time. He is not greedy for money. He is free from the love of money. Money is not his main focus. He's not in this world to get money and to, to, to try to, you know, amass wealth. He's really in this world to serve Jesus Christ is his purpose. Another one here as we go through, it says, he is one who rules his own house well. He manages his own house well. He has authority over his children, his wife. The word well there means with excellence, with excellence. He treats his wife with excellence. He understands what it means in Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, Husbands, love your wives. He understands what it means in 1 Peter chapter 3 when it says, Husbands, you're to dwell with your wife in knowledge. In other words, you're to make a science of your wife. You're to know how to meet her needs. You're to know how to minister to her. And so what it says is this man, first of all, is a man who is a husband, knows how to treat his wife. He knows how to treat her. He knows how to take care of her. But then also, what else? He keeps his children under control with all dignity. Now, this is an interesting term here, too, that's used in the Greek. It is a word, it's a military word, the word under control, the military term. It means that he has his children under him. His children are under his authority, and they're willing to stay under that authority. So a person who has children in their teen years, and they're rebellious, and they're living out from under that authority, that disqualifies that person to serve in this position. Maybe he desires that position, but again, you have to look at the children. Because it goes on to say, how can a man rule the house of God if he can't rule his own children well? 
what God's word says. So he he has to be one who has his children under control. And then look another another term or another word that says here in verse six, he is not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. We know that the devil fell because of pride. Go back to Isaiah, and you will see the devil said that, you know, I want to rise above God. I want to be better than God is. And it was pride. That was the reason that he was kicked out of heaven. That was the reason because of pride. And so he said, listen, this person for this office of an elder cannot be a novice. He's not a recent convert. You wouldn't take somebody who just came to Jesus Christ and say, hey, why don't you be an elder in our church? That wouldn't make sense because there's the potential of them becoming prideful. Oh, wow, look at me. You know, I'm just a brand new Christian. I'm already an elder. And so he says, you don't pick somebody who is new in the faith. And then this, the last one here that he mentions to us, he says in verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into a reproach and snare of the devil. What he's saying here is a reputation. Um, it's interesting, this word reputation is the word matura, which is where we get the word martyr from. Somebody who is martyred. Why is somebody martyred? They're martyred for their testimony. People were martyred because they had a testimony that identified them with Jesus Christ. That's why they're martyred. So this person here, what it's saying is what it's saying, this person here, even people outside the church identify him with Christ. They identify him with Christ. He has a good reputation. You know, this portion of Scripture is already taken for granted that we, as we look at a man within the church, he already has what? He has a good reputation in the church because he's upholding all of these standards. But it's more than just these walls. This person who's in that position of an elder must have a good standing out in the community. So as you go out into the community and you begin to say, hey, you know, <clears throat> Jerry Moore is one of the leaders in our church. Oh, man, I know about that Jerry Moore. Let me tell you the story about him. And then you go to someone else and they say, well, you know, I did business with Jerry. Oh, let me tell you about Jerry Moore. And you go to start hearing things about that. Now, I'm not saying this is Jerry at all. I'm just using him as an example, okay? Because you know what? You never hear those things out in the community. All you hear is what? Good things about Jerry Moore. So when you're looking for somebody to be in the position of an elder, you're looking for somebody who not only has a good reputation within, because you know what? You can come here to church, and we can fake each other. But it's more than what goes on here. It's what's your reputation out in the world. When we go start talking with people who deal with you on a daily basis, what do they say about you? Are you paying your bills? That's a good reputation in the world, isn't it? Are you on time with your bills? That's a good reputation out in the world, isn't it? So here, it's more about just what goes on in the church. He's saying, listen, this person who is in this position of being an elder, this person has to have a good reputation outside of the church. They're known outside the church for their moral character, for their love, for their kindness, for their goodness. 
the world speaks well of them unless they fall into the trap. And that trap is that they'll be discredited. So they serve well outside the church also in their business practices. So that's the qualifications for an elder. And you know what? The reality of this is if you say, Dick, now you're an elder, Pastor John is an elder, do you meet every one of these qualifications 100% of the time, all the time? No. Just ask my wife. I don't. There are sometimes I don't. But you know what? Here's the thing that I think it's looking at. If you looked at my life over the long haul, you're going to see all of these patterns within my life. It's like I said on Sunday night, you know, if you think of David, when we think of King David, David was a man after God's own heart. Does the Bible say that? It does, doesn't it? It says he was a man after God's own heart. So when we look at David's whole life, he's a man after God's own heart over his whole life, okay? But, you know, if you took and you just boxed in one area of David's life, We'll just, we won't even take the big one. We'll just take the one where he numbered the army. Remember that? God said, don't number the army. And he numbered the army because he wanted to see how many men he had. It was a pride problem. And so if we looked at that one little box of his life, we would say, wow, he's what? He's a man full of pride. But that's not how David's whole life was. And, you know, we could then box off just that place where he committed adultery with Bathsheba. We say, wow, there's no way he's saved. Look at this. He's an adulterer. And even a what? Murderer to cover that up. But yeah, what does God say overall about him? He was what? A man after God's own heart. And so here's the reality of what this is saying. This is saying the, the pattern of our life ought to reflect these characteristics. It shouldn't be like this. It should be, in a sense, there's a pattern, and everywhere, every maybe once in a while, there's a little bleep on that pattern. See what I mean? It's holding those qualifications, but every once in a while, there's a bleep. I remember when my kids were, were, were young, and I remember one time just yelling at them, losing it one time with them. And if you would have, if you would have been at my house that day, you would have thought, wow, man, he shouldn't, he shouldn't be an elder. Look at him. Listen to him screaming at those kids. Sounds like a maniac. I don't think any of you have ever done that, have you? No. I, I can still remember the day. But what it's saying here is it's saying, listen, these things as a pattern are in their lives. More than not. One final portion of Scripture. Turn with me over to 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5. We look at the work of an elder. We talked a little bit about this last week. We're just, in a sense, skimming. We could take weeks, months, to look at each of these qualifications, really, one by one. Here, 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, the elders, I want you to know, notice the plurality or the plural that's used there. The elders are not just the elder who is among you. The elders 
who are among you, I exhort you, I whom a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. First of all, I want you to notice here the word shepherd. The word shepherd. He says that the first thing that he will do, he will shepherd the flock. Now, what does it mean to shepherd the flock? What does this word to shepherd mean? It means to tend to the flock, to tend to them. And, and in tending to the flock, one of the most important things he did was he fed the flock. The shepherds would actually go out and prepare the fields so that they would make sure that the sheep would have a place to go to. So he's saying, listen, that shepherd goes out and does what? He prepares a field. Just like a elder would prepare God's Word to teach you. That's what we're doing. That's what I'm doing today. So they feed the flock. They teach God's Word. They protect the flock from false doctrine. They're always looking to make sure what's being taught is right. And then it says here that they exercise oversight. They exercise oversight. And he says, seen as a serving as a overseer, not by compulsion, but willingly. He rules over the flock. So he's not only to feed the flock, but he's to lead them. He's to Lead by example. The elder's life ought to be an example to you of all those qualifications that I just went over with you. He ought to be showing you how to live that. Because you know what? Sometimes we say, oh, well, that's what the leaders of the church know, but that's good for all of us. Every man in this church ought to strive to meet those qualifications. Every woman in this church ought to strive to meet those qualifications. All of us. So, you know, it's easy to sit here today and say, well, Pastor Dick preached to just certain people of the church. No, this is for all of us. Every man in this church ought to be a one-woman man. Every man in this church ought to rule our homes well. Every man in this church ought to have authority over our children and be raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Every man in this church ought to have a good reputation outside the walls of this church. Lest we think it's not, well, this message was just for a few. No, it's for all of us today. This is something good for all of us to strive for. Every man in this church ought to be striving to meet these qualifications. And some of you, I believe, God is aspiring in your heart for you to serve in that position. So especially you should be working on those qualifications. In fact, come this summer, after Ironman is over, one of the things that I plan to do is I plan on Thursday mornings when Ironman is over to hold a leadership seminar to teach men how to be leaders, not only in their home, but in the church. And we'll start that probably in the month of May. It'll go May and June and July, three months on Thursday mornings. We will be teaching how to be leaders. Why? Because I think there ought to be a waiting list 
of men who want to serve as elders. There ought to be a waiting list of men who want to serve as deacons. Why? Because it's a privilege. And so we're going to, all, we're going to do that. Because I want to raise up a multitude of leaders at Mount Calvary Church. So that when we come, you know what's sad to me? I'll just be honest with you. You know what's really sad to me? We have two men, Jamie and John. Jamie Rutt and John Hickson, who are going off the board, and they have done a phenomenal job. I love those men, and I appreciate them. But it's really sad that, I own, that we only have two men to put on. We should have four or five men who want to serve in that position. It's sad. It really is, church, that we can say, hey, we have two, and so you only have two guys to vote for. And that, I believe those men are qualified. But Mount Calvary Church, we ought to have five, six, seven men who want to be in that position and have their name on the ballot and let God chose, choose who wants to serve right now. And so, church, I'm admonishing our men today. Let's step up. Let's be men. Let's meet the qualifications God lays before us Let's serve this ministry to make it the best ministry it can possibly be. Let's pray, or let's, let's take some questions, and then we'll pray, and we've got to quit because we're already really late this morning. We've had so much. I'll take one or two questions this morning about what we've preached about. One or two questions. Anybody? Good. Yeah, so this is Martin was just saying years ago we'd have five or six men whose name would be on the ballot to serve in those positions. Hopefully we can get back to that. I don't think the Bible the Bible really doesn't set a limit. There's a lot of a lot of openness there as far as how it's structured. I think the structure of how many you have serving at a time is left up to the local church. God doesn't particularly say that. A question was asked to me went out the door the last week by last week by somebody who was visiting that relates to this message today is how long should an elder serve? Well, I think just for the because of the position it is, I think, you know, three, four years, and then they go off for a year, and then they can come back on, as long as they're still meeting those qualifications. Because the Bible doesn't really say for sure on that. Bible doesn't say it gives us leeway in that. Any other questions about this, elders? Again, I got some emails this week about the message from last week, and I answered those. Again, thank you. If you have questions about this, email me. Email me, and I'll be glad to get back with you. I'll get back to you pretty quick with those answers. And uh, I think I had four last week who emailed me questions, and we emailed those back. and. I, I love that. I love the questions. So send them to me, and I'll answer them for you and get back to you, or I'll call you and answer them. Uh, so I know this is some new material that we're going through and talking about, so don't hesitate to ask questions. We're going to be dismissed this morning by asking our missions team, who is heading to Source of Life, that all those men would come down front. We want to pray over you this morning.
We have a group of men that are leaving this week to go to Source of Life, Source of Light, and uh, I'm going to have them introduce themselves to you. We're going to use mic number one, and then we're going to pray, and we'll be dismissed. So I appreciate Jason Winters is heading this up for us, and they're heading off to Georgia this week to do a lot of work down at Source of Life Ministries, and we want to pray for them. So I'm going to hand, uh, we'll start out this end, I'm going to hand you the mic. Tell us your name. Shane Frankenfield. Bruce Nyer. Jason Winters, and Steve Brosey is also going, but he might be at work. Eric Masters. Jack Winters. Ed Thomas. Okay, they're leaving on... Tuesday evening, and they're coming back Saturday. They'll be uh, working for about three full days, doing a lot of carpentry and plumbing and things like that, that source of light. So I'm excited about this, that these gentlemen are gone. I appreciate them taking time off from work and, and going. Thank Jason for heading this up. So I thought it'd be great to close our service with a dedication prayer this morning for this missions team that's heading out this week just for God's safety and protection as they go. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Savior, Father, we do thank You for this day and thank You for the Word of God. Lord, thank You, Father, for this position of elder that, Lord, You've chosen to be an office in the church. Lord, I pray that You'll raise up men here at Mount Calvary Church who will desire and aspire, as the Word says, to serve in that position. And that, Lord, every man and even every woman in this auditorium will seek to live our lives to meet those biblical qualifications that you set forth, Father. And now, Lord, we pray for these men. Lord, I thank you for each of them who stand here. And, Lord, they've taken time off from work and have sacrificed uh, to go this week and to minister at Source of Light. Lord, I pray for traveling mercies for them. I pray you'd give them safety, Father. Lord, I pray that as they're there and working each day and, and hanging drywall and doing plumbing and all the things that they'll be involved in, Father, Lord, I just pray that you would keep them safe and that there would be no injuries. I pray that this group of men could be a real encouragement, Lord, to the employees there in Georgia, Father, that work with Source of Light. Lord, I pray that as these men would... Lord, minister there, that the, the people who are there would say that they were refreshing breath of fresh air, Lord, to have them there ministering. And then, God, I pray that the people that come across their paths, whether it be, Lord, as they stop for meals and stop to buy gas, Lord, whatever those activities might be, that you might give this group of men even some opportunities this week to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, may your hand of safety be upon them. And, Lord, use them. Thank you for the gifts and abilities that you've given them and that they're willing to take and turn around and use those gifts and abilities for you. Make it a great week of ministry for these men as they go. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.